Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just um, humbled to think about it uh, every time this year rolls around. You know, and please don't lose sight. A friend of mine posted a picture last night. I'm probably going to share it tomorrow again on Facebook. I started to last night. I said, no, I'm going to save it to Monday. But don't forget, Memorial Day is not about barbecue. But while you're enjoying your barbecue, you remember there's someone. There's someone who didn't come home from a war so that you could have barbecue, so that you could enjoy Memorial Day. Appreciate them. Honor them. I love some of the message of that, that video. It reminds us our, our honoring them, remembering them. It's more so important. So please take that time. It's Memorial Day, um, this Memorial Day weekend, and if, I, I don't know if you have anybody that, that you've lost actually in war, but, you know, I, you know if, you, if you serve this country, if you went into the military, if you serve this country, you've given your life for me. Might, you know, you gave, I've been taken from you, but you stepped into that place. You gave your life for me, and so I honor you, you know, for every, every one of you. I, I just want to honor you as well. If you served in the military, you, you did that. You made that sacrifice, even though it wasn't required of you that, that time. So thank you for that. So a lot of things going on, uh, 29-11 today, uh, the diaper drop. And uh, if I told, I told the first, first service, I said, you, you know, y'all got some extra time today. Y'all can leave this service because... Dollar General is just right down the street here, guys, okay? So, you know, we're not going to be in a big hurry to get these diapers out. If you forgot, man, run down to Dollar General after service. Buy some diapers, come back, be a part of this. 10,000 diapers they go through. Now, that sounds like a lot, but imagine, think about where those diapers go. Those diapers go on the bottoms of just some sweet little precious children that don't have, that don't have families that have enough to take care of them. You know, think about what we're doing with this. We, I mean, you know, this is one of the things that grips your heart. So if you haven't yet, go down to Dollar General, grab some diapers, bring them back. And so our missions team get those uh, delivered today. And also 401 is today. And if you're a member of a team, and if you're not a member of a team, I hope you come into 401 if you've not yet been. But if you're a member of a team, your team is probably meeting today at 401. So ask your skipper. If you don't know, I'd love to see you then. Okay, this, this morning is uh, the last message in our Once Upon a Time series. And I really enjoy preaching this to you because there's so much good stuff just in the stories of the Bible, uh, especially the Old Testament that just uh, teaches us through, you know, the pictures of the stories and the, the actual events that happen teaches the, the truths of the New Testament. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get into this last message. This was on Nehemiah. Father, I love you, God. I thank you for, uh, Lord, just so many blessings that we have in our life. Thank you, God, for for men and women that have sacrificed their all. Lord, and I pray, God, on every one of their families today, I just pray God, you just give them a special blessing. Lord, God, put me in, put me in the path of someone like that. Tomorrow I can, I, can, I can tell them I appreciate them. Lord, put, put all of them in, a, in the path of someone that can be appreciated. And God, I thank you, Lord, for uh, God those in, 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 the, in the church, Lord, that have gone before us and have also given so much for us. And God, I thank you, Lord, for, for your strength, your help. I thank you for the one who paid the ultimate sacrifice on the cross of Calvary for my sin for my eternity, Lord. And, I, and God, I want to honor you today for that. And just pray, God, that you would stir us today, challenge us today, God. I, I, I don't want anybody to get weary. I don't want anybody to quit. I don't want anybody to give up. I don't want anybody to miss the awesomeness of what you want to do in their life. I pray, God, challenge us today, God, to allow you to fulfill your perfect dream in our lives, God, in every area, every area of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Let's go to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1. 
And I'm going to read this whole chapter to you, okay? It's only 11 verses. It won't take long. All right, so the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. And basically tell us these are the words of Nehemiah. Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Israel was overthrown, and, and they were all exiled, or they all dispersed all over the, the nation. The Babylonians did this, and the, you know, the Greeks and, and the Pers- Medes and Persians, they overthrew each other and you know, just kept on. And so eventually they got to go back. A lot of Jews were returning back to Israel. They're going back to Jerusalem. And they were living there around the city. And a lot like what we're seeing happen in our lifetime today is Israel is returning to Israel. And so now some have come back to the palace. And so now Nehemiah is asking, so give me a report. What's going on in Jerusalem? They said, those who survived the exile and are now back in the province around Jerusalem are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, Nehemiah said, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be uh, open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction. He was reminding God. Remember, God, what you told us. You gave this instruction to your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, which is what they, were, they had witnessed or they had been a part of. But God says, If you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants, God. They are your people, whom you've redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. As I think through, and I was thinking this just the other day, you know, because last week, the sermon on Esther, and, and it revolved kind of a little bit around the king. It wasn't about the king, it was about Esther, but it had a lot to do with the king. And today, we're going to Nehemiah, and this isn't a story about a king, but it was closely associated with the king. And I thought about how many stories there are in the Old Testament about kings and great men and, and, and heroes, almost superheroes sometimes, which just awesome abilities and talents and, and everything. And, you know, and I was kind of, I was kind of then started talking to God about that. I said, man, God, you know, it just almost doesn't seem like there's a lot of common people in the Old Testament. And then God just spoke right back to me. And he said, that's not the picture at all that you need to get from this. He said, these aren't superheroes. These aren't uh, extraordinary people. But what these are is all of these people, all these great heroes and champions of the Old Testament, all of them, they are ordinary people with extraordinary passion, with extraordinary drive, with extraordinary calling, with extraordinary sacrifice and desire to do the great things. And here we see it, right here in Nehemiah, because what was he? A cupbearer. Now, now, you know, I don't have time to develop this whole thought right here, but now that was, that was uh, somewhat of a, an exalted position, but it's not a big deal, okay? I mean, you take, you take the cup from the bottle to the king, you know? Other than those of you who have two left feet, I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot of talent to accomplish something like that, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's not like he was a superhero because he was able to take the cup from the bottle to the king. 
You know, he was just a cupbearer, but he accomplishes something awesome and mighty for God. Why? Not because of talent, not because of any, you know, because he was born into the right family or any of those kinds of things, but simply because he had an awesome passion. He had an awesome drive. He had a, he had a desire to do. And I mean, he's a man of God. Did you, did you hear the words there that we just read in this prayer? I mean, he's a man that is connected to God. He, he knew the words to say. He knew how to pray to God. He knew how to even, I mean, he knew the words to remind God, God, you've already promised this to us, your people. He knew how to approach God. I mean, this was, this was an awesome man, but he was just an ordinary man, yet with extraordinary something inside of him. And this summer, you know, there's, there's a big, huge sporting event. It's going to happen. Everybody in the world pretty much is going to be focused on it. the Olympics. And, and in the Olympics, you know, uh, at every event, somebody's going to get a gold medal. And what is the price of gold. You ever thought about that? You know, because a lot of people think, well, it, it, the talented, you know, the ones that have this, you know, just the natural ability to do that. But it's not the ones who have the talent that stand on that highest pedestal uh, podium and, and get that gold medal hung around their neck. It's not always the one with the most talent. It's the one with the most drive, the one with the most passion, the one who is, the one who is sacrificed, who will give up that Snickers to run an extra half mile, right? I mean, most of us, you know, we don't want to give up our Snickers, right? But, but they, you know, they're willing to give up their Snickers. They're willing to, 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 to do what it takes. They, they've got the passion for this thing. And just like Nehemiah, they're champions. You know what? I don't know about you, but I want to be a champion in every area of my life. I want to be a champion in my marriage. I want to be a champion as a, as a dad. I want to be a champion as a granddad. And I want to be a champion as a pastor. When this is all over, said and done, and, and they write my eulogy, and some of you might be around and write my eulogy, I want people to, to look at me and say, he laid it all out on the field. He had, a, he had an intense desire and drive and passion and sacrifice. He was the champion for, for, for our church. He was a champion for his family. I, that's what I want to be said about me. But that doesn't come easy. It doesn't come cheap, and it doesn't come just because you're gifted to do that, because it's not always the most talented that gets the gold medal. And a lot of times it, it, is, it is people that are very, very highly talented, but talent alone won't get it for you. you got to have that passion, and that's chapter 1, the passion and the call. That's what happens in chapter 1. We've just read the whole chapter, so you've got the story there. I mean, the passion that is there. What's the passion? I mean, the passion is over Israel in Jerusalem because when he hears the story, what happens? He breaks down. Nothing else matters. He starts crying. He mourns for several days. Nothing else matters. That's the thing that we're passionate about. You know, that's how you know. What are you really passionate for? The thing that just can stop your world. You know, you can have 500 things on your to-do list. But your child fall off a tricycle and break a leg. All of a sudden, guess what? To-do list doesn't matter anymore, does it? This is the thing that we're passionate about. What is it that stops your world? What is it that turns it all upside down? What is the thing that you are passionate for? That's what we're talking about here. But it's the passion and the call. And a lot of us are scared to death to hear God, aren't we? We're afraid he's going to call us. Some of y'all are afraid he's going to call you to a mission field somewhere and you're going to have to sleep in a you know, a hut and, and uh, deal with snakes and all that, and uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we're scared to death that, that God's going to call us to do something that, that we haven't got any passion for whatsoever. But God's not stupid. Somebody say amen. God's not stupid, is he? You know, he's not stupid. I mean, you know, God's not going to, he's not going to look at somebody and, you know, and say, say uh, hey, hey, Britain, 
oh, man, I really messed you up. I, I really want you to do this. Man, I wish I'd have thought to, to give you passion for this thing I need you to do. God's not stupid. Your call is going to match your passion because the same person who has given you the call has given you the passions that are inside of you. The passion is going to match the call. It's going to fit. It's going to be there. It's, it's going to match. It's not going to be something that, that's, that's totally out in left field, but the passion is going to meet the call. It, because it is the same thing. I, I was riding on, on, a, on a jet um, Couple, I don't know, it's probably been seven or eight years ago. Uh, I think of it, we, were, we were ministering in, in Texas and serving in Texas with youth there and, and was flying back home by myself. I picked up a magazine, you know, one of the magazines in the back, and, you know, and I was reading through, and there was an article in there about your dream job. And it wasn't one of those where you, you, know, you check off all these things, you add up the A's, the B's, the C's, and D's, and you figure out your dream job. You just read through it, it kind of helped you figure out what your dream job was. What are you passionate for? What are you passionate for? All those. Guess what mine was? When I got to the end of this article, you know what mine was? To be chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys football team. <laughs> Anybody want to go? <laughs> yeah, man. You know, cause, you know, mixing God and sports. I mean, how much better can it get? You know, and I'm a big, big Cowboys fan. My dad's, uh, he's, he, he's part of the, uh, if you want to blame anybody, you can blame him. It's part of the blame for that. So that was my, you know, that was my dream job. I don't say my passion because guess what? I didn't chase it. I didn't chase it because it, it might have been like a, a dream job, but a dream job and a passion is not the same thing because a passion is what makes you throw the dream job down and say, this is what's important. A passion is what makes you throw away a lot of the dreamy stuff that you say, man, this would be cool if we got to do If you say this would be cool, that's not your passion. Something that is cool is not your passion. Let me tell you the most cool thing that you'll ever experience in your life and understand is this, is, is that inside of you, there is a great passion for the exact thing that God needs done. That's a cool thing. That is the most cool thing you'll ever understand in your life. Is that already inside of you, there is a deep passion for what God needs to happen this week at your job or you know, with, with your friends. There is already this passion. It is the most cool thing. And when you understand that and grasp all that, then you can start moving forward to somewhere. And some of you, you know what you're you need to move in your passion. Chapter 2. So how does he move in his passion? He makes a plan. Now, when he, and I started to say it again here. I started to say it the first service, started to say it the second, because I want to say, he goes to the king. He doesn't approach the king. Let me tell you how this happens. A few days later, the king says, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? I can tell something's wrong. You know, you, you, don't, you don't look like you're happy, but you don't appear to be sick. Nehemiah didn't have to go to him. Sometimes we, we think in prayer that we have to go interrupt God and say, hey, God, I, I need your help. And we think we got to go get him, but we don't have to go get him. God sees, just like this king saw in Nehemiah, God sees, and he says, something's not right. I can tell something's not right. And then what he does is he says, tell me about it, like, like Nehemiah's king did. God, our, our God in heaven, if Nehemiah's king, being an evil king, a, a worldly king, how much more than the king of heaven, who knows everything about you, he's going to say, something's not right, tell me about it. And when Nehemiah began telling him about it, he didn't just say, hey, here's my problem, here's why. Nehemiah already had a plan. He said, here's the problem, but here's what I think we need to do. He says, I need to go back and I need to rebuild the city walls and I need you to send some soldiers with me and protect me and I, I need you to help me with the financing of it. I mean, he had a plan. He had made a plan. And then he gets back to Jerusalem. And that very first day he gets back to Jerusalem, a lot of people had already moved back to Jerusalem. Most of them, they were living outside the city because the city was just destroyed. 
I mean, there were buildings there that they could have lived in, but the, the walls were all torn down. It was a problem to get in and out. So why live inside when you can't hardly get in and out? There was no protection there. And these people, some of them had been there for, for a generation. Some, they'd been there for decades. Every day they got up and they looked and they saw the city that was broken down and Nehemiah sees them and, and he goes and meets them. And it's like every single day they look at this city and nobody knows what to do. They're upset about it. They don't like it. It's broken down. It's destroyed. Just like a lot of us. Every day you wake up, your marriage is broken. Every day you wake up, your lives are destroyed. And every single day you just keep looking at it and you don't know what to do. You don't have a plan. You don't have an idea. You don't have, you don't have any hope. You're just looking at this broken life that you, that you have somehow ended up with. And you don't know how it happened even. And you're standing there day after day after day. And Nehemiah shows up. You know what Nehemiah decides? He says, we don't to do this anymore. Come on, somebody needs to get, make up their mind right now. We're not going to do this anymore. I'm not waking up tomorrow and looking at this same broken life that I'm looking at today. We're going to do something to change it starting today. That night, he got a few of the people. He waited till it was dark, so a lot of people didn't know. He got a few of the people. He got on a horse, didn't let anybody else have a horse. I don't know why he did this. Maybe he didn't want them to get out in front of him. But he got on a horse, and he started going around the city. He went in this gate and went around through what he could around through this gate. He got to some gates that he couldn't get through, and so he had to go around and went around looking at the whole city. And what he was doing that night is he was making a plan. But in the middle of the night, he was walking. He was pacing. He was looking. He was thinking. He was, he was imagining what could be. And just like me and you, there's sometimes that God calls us to fast sleep. Now, I told you a little bit about fasting last week. And when you do that, it's when you say, more than I want to eat, I want this thing in my life. And in the same way, in the middle of the night, sometimes God wakes you up and he lays something on your heart that's falling apart in your life and something that needs to be fixed. And, and when that happens and when it comes into your mind, you don't need, don't roll over and go back. So it's time to fast some sleep. It's time to say, more than I want to sleep right now, I want this thing fixed in my life. I can't tell you the number of times when my kids were small, that I'd be, I'd be awakened in the middle of the night and I'd grab that anointing oil that I had at my house and I, I'd, I'd crawl down the hallway because if I was going to fast sleep, I didn't want to do it because I woke them up and I had to play with them. I wanted to, I wanted to get serious with God, so I real quietly crawl down. And I'd sometimes sit outside of their room. Sometimes I'd go right to their bed and I'd lean up against their footboard. I'd, I'd anoint that footboard and I'd pray. Why? Because God had laid it on me because there was something brewing and I realized God wanted this as much as I wanted this. And I began making a plan. I began, and I began developing a plan with God and said, God, we're going to pray this and we're going to believe this. And tomorrow I'm going to help with this and we're going to do this. And not just about my kids. There have been other times that God wakes me up and I say, I just got to fast sleep. What I was doing, he was making a plan. And understand this. It's when you get God's will. A lot of times what you've got to do is you've got to make the plan. You've got to take God's will and you've got to make the plan. And I see so many people that are paralyzed in the spirit. Because they're waiting on God to do it all. Now, now, now imagine somebody who's so spiritually minded they're no earthly good. You've heard of that little phrase or whatever. Imagine, imagine a, a mechanic putting a car back together. You know, he's built an engine. He's putting it back together. And, and you know, he's, he's tightening the bolts. And, and uh, have you ever tightened a bolt and, and thought, maybe I need just a little bit more. And, you know, you're not really sure if that's tight enough. And guys, any of you guys ever over-tightened a bolt and broke one? You know what I'm saying? And you just don't want to go too far. And so... Imagine somebody super spiritualizing every single thing about it. They say, oh, well, I, I, you know, I really need God's direction on this. So they stop right there, put the tools down, say, God, now should I tighten this another quarter turn or not? And they pray, and they, get, they, they finally get direction. So they say, okay, one more quarter turn. 
And then stop saying, is that enough, God? And then, and then the next bowl, the next bowl, the next. You're going to get nothing done. And that's what's happening in a lot of people's spiritual lives. Is they're waiting on God to give them every single direction. And you know what? God wants you to use the God-given common sense and the talent and ability he's given you that once you've got the vision, then get busy about making a plan to make it happen. Start praying, start fasting, start getting busy about talking to whoever you need to talk to, fix what you need to do, uh, correct the things inside of you, do what needs to be done, and make it happen. You know, pray that morning, say, God, give me, give me in perfect sync with your will, let my heart and your heart be as one. And, this, and so then later today, when I'm tightening that bolt, I know, okay, that's a pretty good one. I'll stop right there. i got some good common sense, and I know how far to go. Chapter 3, right? Yeah. Delegation and division. So here's what he did. Man, when he got back from this little trip around, the people said, well, what, what do you think about it? He said, we're going to fix something right now. They got all excited. There was somebody with a plan. You got problems in your life? Let me tell you what to get people excited when somebody gets a plan. I know how to fix this. I know what we're going to do. He started laying out a plan, and he started, he started dividing them up. And the, some of the priests said, hey, we'll start on the sheep gate. They went to the sheep gate, and they started building it. And somebody else, he sent somebody else down to the horse gate, and some over to the fish gate, some to the valley gate. And then some, he said, now you build this part of the wall between these two gates. And then he said, there were some others that I set to, to build this section. Some others, you can read, you can read there how, how every, there was somebody, they, just, they were just scattered out all around the city working on the wall. Somebody said this. Nobody in the first service got it. See if, see if somebody can answer my question. Who said, who, who said this quote right here? We're going to need a bigger boat. What Noah? Who was it? Come on, I hear y'all whispering. Somebody say it out loud. Exactly, Roy Scheider and Jaws. Remember that big old, big old shark comes up out of the water? So, We're going to need a bigger boat. Now, I'm not like him because you know what I would have said? I would have said, this is your vision, not mine. You're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> but he said, we're going to need a bigger boat. You know, because, what, because he realized there's no way this little boat's going to take that shark on. But, you know, he might not have been the first one to say it. It might have been the disciples that said it. You remember when, when Jesus called the disciples? Uh, they had been fishing all night, and they had said they had caught nothing, and Jesus said, throw the net on the other side. And I know some of you say, well, this is just a carnal thing. You know, this is just about, you know, just about their job and work and everything. No, no, no. God, Jesus was showing them something. He was showing them he knew where the fish was because what he was about to do was call them away from just being fishers of fish to be fishers of men. And if he knows where the fish are, he knows where the men are. And if he knows how to catch the fish, he knows how to catch the men. This is a big deal. And he says, throw it on the other side. And when they threw it on the other side, they started bringing the net in. And the net was so full of fish, it began to break. And, and the boat couldn't hold it. So maybe one of the disciples looked at the other one and said, we're going to need a bigger boat. Maybe it was them that said it. But have you ever said it? Have you ever said this in your life? I'm going to need a bigger boat for what God's about to do in my life. Mm. My family's going to need a bigger boat. My marriage is going to need a bigger boat. My finances are going to need a bigger boat. Have you ever said this in your life? Because here, here's the thing. If you, if, you never, if you never need anybody else or anything else or you never need God, you're not dreaming big enough. You've got passions that are about this tall then. You need to have passions that are so big you need to have direction. You need to have dreams that are so big that fill them. If you've got God's help and the help of Christians around you, and every once in a while you say, God, i got to have a bigger boat for this thing. Because Noah, God gave him a vision. But he needed his three sons to build that boat and make it happen. Amen?
You following me? Gideon. He had, he had a calling, but he needed 300 men to go with him. Moses. He had to lead a huge group of people, and he needed all those leaders to keep everything straight. Jonathan won a, a great battle one day, but he didn't do it alone. Almost. But he still needed his armor bearer. David. I know we look at David and we think he was a solo act. Well, he was when he was out watching sheep and he was playing all those songs and everything. But he needed his mighty men. David was not always a solo act. He needed his mighty men. And even Jesus needed his 12 disciples. And sometimes he needed those three that were so close to him that he could share. Even Jesus needed his. Listen, if you never need anybody, then your dreams aren't big enough. You need to start dreaming bigger. Because God's got dreams so big that you need him and you need each other. Amen. Chapter 4, is that what we're on next? Opposition and the response. So when they started building, and when the people that, were, that lived not far from Jerusalem heard about this, they didn't like it. Talking about not the Jews, but kind of their enemies. They didn't, re- they didn't really have the enemies because they were all in one country. But they didn't like it. Sanballat and Tobiah, the Ammonite, they, they, talk, they talked about them. They ridiculed them. And they threatened. We're going to come kill you. We're going to come tear it down. And then there were Jews that lived out there around Sanballat and Tobiah, and they weren't part of the work. Get this. They weren't part of the work. And you know what? They didn't like it either. When, when Nehemiah and all them started doing something great at the, in, in the city, the Jews that weren't part of that work, they didn't like it either. Man, we could stop and preach about churches not liking other churches, couldn't we, right here? But can I tell you something? Somebody, somewhere is not when you start growing, when you start getting bigger, when you start beginning to be the person that God has called you to be, when, when, when good stuff starts happening in your life, and when, you, know, and when you, you find out that you didn't need them as much as you need God, you know, and sometimes you don't hang in with them as much as you hang out with God, there's going to be somebody in your life that doesn't like it anymore. What's the response? Here's the response, the same as Nehemiah. He said, this is a good thing. He didn't didn't turn it back around. He didn't say, you come after me, we're going to come after you. He 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 didn't threaten them back, but he said, this is a good thing. It's going to be good for the kingdom because the king has honored this thing. And it's going to be good for Jews everywhere because this is about God. This is his holy city. This is the place where his presence is supposed to be. This is a good thing. That's the response, always. Because let me tell you something. Whenever good stuff starts happening to me, people I don't even know existed hate me. And sometimes, even people that I thought were my closest friends don't like it when good things start happening in my life. So what do you do? What do you do? You say, this is a good thing, and you keep going, which leads right into this next chapter because there was a loss of focus. You got to stay focused. If you're not careful, those people, will, they will get you unfocused. They will make you focus on everything else except what you're supposed to be focused on. Now, what happened in Nehemiah's time? He didn't know this was going on. But see, people, they started building. They started a building, and then they began thinking about, well, what about tomorrow, and what about down the road and everything? And they started thinking, and we've got to build our houses too, and, and we've got to have this. And some of the families, they didn't have enough food, money to buy food, grain, to make bread, or, and so they had to borrow money. And then what happened was, some, so some of the Jews that had more money, they were loaning to the other Jews that didn't have enough money, and they were charging them interest based on the world's rates. You know, that's the way we do it, don't we, Christians? I mean, you loan somebody some money, you say, well, you know, the bank charges such and such interest, so I think what would be good for you to pay me would be this. I mean, that's what they do, right? That's what we do, right? 
is we kind of get caught up in the world's way of doing everything. And then you know what happens? Because they were mortgaging their lands and their properties and their houses, you know what happened when they couldn't make the payments? Then these Jews that were building the city, they were taking property from the other Jews who were building the city. They were all working together, yet they were taking each other's property and they were charging exorbitant amounts of interest. Nehemiah didn't know this was going on. When word came to him that this was happening, Nehemiah said, wait a minute. We've lost focus. We're no longer doing what God called us to do. We're not building his kingdom. Now we're all building our little kingdoms. Come on, somebody. And here's what happens. Here's what happens when when it doesn't happen overnight in our lives. It's so easy for us to lose our focus and we start saying, well, I think I'll do this. Or I think I'll do that. Or we start thinking about maybe I'll do this or do that or do this. And we get, we get way out ahead of God. And we start, we start working on tomorrow. And we start thinking about next year. We start thinking about 10 years down the road or whatever. But here's the secret. Here's the secret. It's planning for tomorrow without ignoring today. In the first service, you know, I told them, I, I told them this is just, this is just a, a little shallow example, okay? But I said, you know, I told him, after church, you can hurry down to Dollar General and come back. But I know what some of you are thinking. Okay, I got, I got to get somewhere. You know, I got plans and whatever. Now the pastor said, I got to go to Dollar General, buy some diapers and come back. You know, so I'm in, really in a hurry now. So I don't have time to shake anybody's hand on the way out the door. I don't have time to hug anybody's neck, give them a smile, be friendly, whatever. Because I got to go buy those diapers, get back here so I can get on to my appointment this afternoon. And you know what? We do that in our lives so much so that we're worried about the next thing, and we're not taking care of this thing. And we're walking, and there are people in this room right now. I told this in the first service. It's, at, it's right here right now, too. There are people in this room right now who their lives are falling apart. They're struggling just, just putting a smile on their face when you ask them how it's going. And you know what they need? They desperately need you to just delay tomorrow for just a moment and live in this moment with them and tell them that you're there for them. Give them a smile. Give them a handshake. Tell them you love them. Take some time. And some of them are your family. Amen, oh me. Some of them live in the house with you. And you need to quit mortgaging today for your tomorrow and live in this moment and understand because we don't have a tomorrow without today. If you're not living in today, you're not going to have a tomorrow. i got to hurry. Chapter 6 is uh, finish. Finish. They finish the wall. At the beginning of the chapter, we see that they had finished the wall, everything except hanging the doors on the gates. But at the very beginning of chapter 7, we find that they have hung the doors on the gates. So I want you to know they finished because this is important. The first requirement of winning. You want to be a champion? Let me give you the first requirement. Finish. If you don't finish, you can't win. You can have the most awesome training regimen you can have the greatest talent. You can, you can be faster than anybody else on the planet. You can, you can have the passion, the drive, the sacrifice. But if you stop one foot short of the finish line, you can't win. Now, I like to play golf. don't get to do it very often. But there's something I've heard a whole lot on the golf course after I putt. When the ball doesn't quite get to the hole. I've heard it can't fall in the hole if it doesn't get to the hole. You can't win a prize if you don't get there. If you stop one, there was, there was a study done not too long ago about, I don't even know how they did this. 
But they had, they had runners. They had sprinters. They had runners. And, and as they were running, sprinting, giving everything they could, they, they, they figured out some way to move the finish line. While the runners were looking at it, they were able to, I don't know if it was maybe a, a line, you know, light laser or something. And they said none of the runners could finish. Of course they ran through it, but you ever seen, you ever seen sprinters? I mean, they don't run that 100 yards as fast as they can, and then they run another 50 at full rate. I mean, as soon as they hit that finish line, I mean, boom, 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 boom. they're backing down, right? Because they are so focused on finishing. It's like, well, they ought to run through it. They ought to do run through it. But they're focused on finishing. If you want to be a champion, you got to focus on finishing. you got to make sure you get all the way through the end of it and focus on the finish. Nobody runs a marathon and then runs, ah, let's run two or three more laps. Did you do that, Jamie? <laughs> Nobody does that. You, you focus on finishing. It's not just about let's do this for fun. It's about focusing on finishing. And that was proven by the movie, the, the study that they moved the finish line and, and they, could, they couldn't run just two more feet. They couldn't take two more steps at full speed because they were focused on finishing. That's the champion. If you want to be a champion in your marriage, as a parent, in any area of your life, then you need to focus on finishing. Turn to the person next to you and say, let's finish. Stand, come to the front, and let's finish this service.